Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. Why helicopters? Maybe it's because anybody can fly an airplane and I always like to do something that's just a little bit different. You have so much going on in a helicopter. Your right hand's doing one thing, your left hand's doing another thing, your feet are doing something, and then you're constantly looking around, you're working on the radio, you're figuring out where safe landing spots are in the event of an engine failure. So every part of you is engaged. Is this how I want to operate in the world? And so I'm constantly trying to find the right balance between the reality and the, the craziness of everything that's going on here. As a natural connector, I'm constantly looking for ways to introduce people to each other, whether they're investors to investors, investors to startups or even resources to resources to continue to build what I'm calling this mesh network of support in order to get more money into the hands of these female founders, founders of color, LGBTQ plus founders, because money is power and we really need to see a shift in order to really level the playing field. The good news is that there's no single path into angel investing. And that's one of the things that I really want to make sure is really clear for a lot of women, especially who are generally not big risk takers. We need to set aside some part of our asset class into higher risk assets, invest intelligently so we can have the potential for bigger outcomes. Because simply putting stuff into a mutual fund or putting stuff into a bank account is not going to grow our wealth. And if we get paid 73, 75 cents or 78 cents on the dollar for every man, we already know that we're behind the curve for later on. So we have to start taking more risks. Hi, listeners. This is Fei Wu, your host for the Face World podcast. For the past two weeks, I've been trying something new, which is to tell you a little bit more about podcasts and podcasting and all the quick facts. Quick fact number three this week is that podcast listeners are loyal, affluent, and also educated. That is you, my friend. Did you also know that 80% of the people listen to all or most of each podcast episode and listens to an average of seven shows per week. This week, we welcome Terry Hansen Mead, who is a San Francisco Bay Area native, a helicopter pilot, a skill which she acquired later in life after she has become a mom. This was one of the conversations I wish that never end. Terry and I literally talked for hours. So we had to break down this episode into two parts, and I hope you listen to both. Trust me, it's worth it. The conversation with Terry is especially exciting for women who want to know how they too can thrive in business and in life. In particular, I'm a firm believer that women who have worked in a corporate environment can also grow into careers that give them more freedom. 
Though there isn't an absolute work-life balance, which is an overused phrase and we're trying to avoid, Terry walked me through how she manages her success as a self-made unsung heroine. As for Terry, her background had to do with technology, and she can help companies get to market faster and optimize overall business processes. In the second part of our conversation, we talked about her angel investing with Sand Hill Angels. Investing isn't an area of my expertise, but I learned so much from Terry, who's passionate about digital health, specifically in femtech, which is women's healthcare, and also pediatech, which is pediatric healthcare. You may be wondering why femtech and pediatech, because 80% of household healthcare spent is controlled by women, and over 50% of the population is female. This is a greenfield opportunity right now. Terry's also investing in many female founders. Why? The research and data support that investing in women makes good business sense, and not enough investors are taking advantage of this very opportunity. I hope you enjoy the show. Quick announcement, FaceWorld is launching its very first course called Reaching Billions. I'm super excited. It's a course to help maybe you or someone you know launch your show in China without learning a word in Chinese. To learn more, please visit faceworld.com forward slash course. Without further ado, please welcome the lovely Terry Hansen Mead to the FaceWorld podcast. I was really touched when I received your email. It wasn't a canned version of, hi, would you like to be on my show? Or you seem interesting. But it was so well curated. And I was really touched by that email. I opened that up when I just landed in, I believe, Portland, Oregon, after a six, seven hour flight. And just kind of, you know, that moment being out of town, it warmed my heart. And I was so excited just in the, in the taxi reading it. So thank you for that. No, I think, you know, thank you for saying that. I do spend a lot of time on my messages to people, introductions to make sure that there's context, that there's value, that uh, there is something that's very personal. We all, we're inundated with information. And so if there isn't a personal touch or there isn't something that that gives us the ability to connect, we're just going to disregard it. So, um, so thank you for saying that. It's it's helpful me for me to know that the effort that I put into something actually has value. Absolutely, and I wish more people talk about it too. Because um, I always say something when I see an email, either from creators like yourself, or even a friend, like a family or a friend who sent me something meaningful. I always m- make sure I say something because I feel like part of what we are here on Earth is to encourage other people, and especially the good behaviors, because so much of that is lacking today. So with that said, Tara, the first thing that caught my eye that I felt like, I don't care what other people ask you, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that you are, um, you are or you were working uh, as a pilot. So, I, so I'm commercially rated, but I, I don't work. It's a, it's a hobby. I do it for fun. But I have a commercial rating, and and we, if you want to, whenever you want to get started, I can explain why I got a commercial rating in addition to my private. But I've never done it as a career; it's always been a hobby. It's something that I paid for because I always wanted to do it, and I became a commercial rated helicopter pilot to be a better pilot. So it was to be a better and safer pilot. 
maybe one day I'll get paid to do it, but it's just a hobby. Well, so let's talk about that. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm one of your best friends. Like Terry is <laughs> I'm putting all these <laughs> labels and titles on you, but thank you. You're so thank you for clarifying that. Um tell tell us why you decided to become a, a pilot. Like what how old were you? I guess what were you going through at the time? I mean, it was a pretty big well, commitment. So, yeah, no, it's so funny because it showed up on my Facebook memories that nine years ago at this time I was doing my final prep for my check ride to get my private rating. So it goes back to my dad flew fixed wing. He had a Cessna 152 and flew out of Hayward, California. And I got to go up and fly with him. He worked a lot. So it was always a, um, it was always time to get daddy time with, with him when he would go flying. And when we were about eight, so you know it, but your listeners don't know, I, I have an identical twin sister. And so she and I had an opportunity to go up in a helicopter at an air show. And inside my head, I just said, one day I'm going to fly one of these things. And I never told told anybody until, oh gosh, 15 and a half years ago when my husband and I moved down the peninsula from San Francisco, we would drive by the San Carlos airport, which is middle of Silicon Valley. And I'd see all these helicopters and just say, one day I'm going to fly one of those. One day I'm going to fly one of those. And my husband got so sick and tired of hearing me say that, that for my 38th birthday, he gave me a discovery flight and he thought, okay, she's going to say, this is too expensive. This is too noisy. This is too something or another. And that I would just shut up. And instead, I just said, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. And the client projects I was working on, I had some flexibility and I decided just to go for it. And it was almost 10 years ago. 10 years ago in April was when I had my first discovery flight. And then I jumped off and just said, I'm going to go get my license. Wow. So I'm so glad you did that because it's not so much of a hobby to say, I, I'm going to learn how to Zumba dance or how to take swimming lessons. You know, this this was quite a bit of a commitment. But tell tell me about your initial experience at the time. I mean, what was the training like? Were you scared? So, um, so getting my license was one of the hardest things I'd ever done. You know, I have kids, I had, you know, an MBA, I've started a business, um, but getting the license was one of the hardest things I was raised, you know, I was born in San Francisco, grew up in the East Bay, in the East Bay in Northern California. And not that I was raised as a girl, but I didn't know anything about mechanics and I'm not aerodynamic type things, things that aren't tangible or difficult for me from a conceptual perspective. So the first instructor that I had was this guy named Aaron. And I decided to go with him only because he's the one that I did the discovery flight with. And I thought, okay, I'll just get started with him. And after the first month, I was like, this does not feel right. I didn't feel like I was progressing. I'm very goal oriented. I like to know what the target is and I like to hit the target. And so I told him, I said, I need a better plan. I need to feel like I'm accomplishing something. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. And so the next month, continued to be more of the same. And we were in the air and just had a little bit of a fight in the air over a misunderstanding. And I just said, you're fired, you're done. So that was two months that I felt like I'd kind of wasted. And then I bounced around through two more months of a couple of other instructors until I landed on this gal, Monica. And Monica was 19, had just finished her CFI or flight instructor school. And I was essentially her first student. And I was like, oh my gosh, here she is 19. What does she know? How is she? Oh my gosh, she was amazing. By Halloween, I passed my written exam with 100%. I soloed by Thanksgiving. And then 
by March, I had my license. And since I was doing it um, part-time while I was working, running my business, having my family, et cetera, by March. So within 11 months after I took my first discovery flight, I had my license. And it was it was hard because it wasn't like I attended classes. It was a very tailored program to me. And I would just sit down and have ground school with her like six to nine o'clock at night, a couple of days a week. We would schedule flights and with weather, sometimes they would get canceled. Sometimes there'd be a problem with the helicopter. So it was very, there was a lot of start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. What is the, you mentioned ground school. What does that mean? So you have to uh, you have to have cer- certain basic knowledge, and so in ground school you're not up in the air actually flying. What you're doing is you're learning about aerodynamics, you're learning about parts of the engine, you're learning about weather, you're learning about communication. You know all this kind of stuff. So it's two parts. So when you go and you do your check ride with an FAA um, person, my guy was John Pyle out of Palo Alto. I now rent helicopters through him. So. The first part of the exam is a um, is an oral exam. So it asks you about all sorts of things, FAA regulations. You have to do, you know, um, look at charts. You have to talk about airspace. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. For my private rating, that was probably four to six hours before we went out and flew for about two hours to go through all of the different um uh, activities or exercises that are part of the standard check ride in order to get passed. And then for my commercial rating, I want to say my oral was about eight hours. So it was it was pretty intensive. So so yeah, I've got to do all the groundwork to learn enough so that when when the check ride person gives you the oral exam, that you're able to answer all of the questions. Hi there, you're listening to the Phase Roll the Podcast. This is your host, Fei Wu. Today on the show, I'm joined by Terry Hanson Mead, who is a San Francisco Bay Area native, a helicopter pilot, an angel investor, and a kick-ass female entrepreneur. Why helicopters instead of you know jets <laughs> and planes? Because I, I mean, believe it or not, where I am right now, I I know somebody. You know, I live in Boston and Maine. Um, it's just about like say three four hours away, and I know there are people I knew who took uh, lessons. I was able to fly jets, I guess, back and forth. I, I don't know why why helicopters. So when I'm around fixed wing or airplane people, they ask me, you know, why helicopters over airplanes? And I'll say, well, because anybody can fly an airplane. Um, Why helicopters? Uh, Maybe it's because anybody can fly an airplane. And I always like to do something that's just a little bit different. You have so much going on in a helicopter. Your right hand's doing one thing. Your left hand's doing another thing. Your feet are doing something. And then you're constantly looking around. You're working on the radio. You're figuring out where safe landing spots are in the event of an engine failure. So you're engaged on, every part of you is engaged. And so for me, that is the fun part. That's the challenge. It helps me, it's it's very zen to some extent because let's say I'm having like a particularly tough time with a client project or my kids or my husband. If I go flying, I literally and figuratively get above it all. Because, you know, if you think about like swimming, when I focus on swimming and I do laps or whatever, it's so mind clearing and flying is the same way. 
So I don't know. I just always loved helicopters more than airplanes. I, I completely understand the meditative side of things as I'm a very avid swimmer myself. I have every time, I mean, once you're in the pool and your ears are, you know, covered with water and such, you just, everything else is just tuned out. You don't have to do anything. Um, but, you know, one thing I know with helicopters, I was very excited to be on my, I would say my very first, maybe second ride um, of, I, I think the first time ever was, of course, in Arizona, the Grand Canyon. At the time, I was light enough. Uh, I, I actually sat right next to the pilot. And I noted just how unbelievable that experience is because you're so close. Uh, you know, you don't get the wings and it just feels so close. It's so surreal. And they give you these like Bose headphones. And yeah, how, how does it feel for you to fly? Uh, do, do you listen to music? I mean, what, what do you do when oh, you fly? Oh, no, no. I have to focus 100% on the flying, um, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's really busy airspace. And we're really close to the Class Bravo airspace, the, um, the San Francisco airspace. And then we've got Class Charlie over in Oakland and San Jose. And then, you know, just over the hill over in um, Half Moon Bay, it, you know, People don't necessarily have to be on radio. So you have to constantly be vigilant to make sure that you see what's going on, you listen to what's going on, to make sure that you're not uh, introducing any unnecessary risk. And that's the thing for me is because this is a hobby, because I'm the primary breadwinner in my family, my husband has stayed home with the kids for 10 and a half years, I need to make sure that I come home alive. And so it's all about mitigating risk. And typically I just do bay tours. And so I just fly up to San Francisco, sometimes under the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, over to Half Moon Bay. I love flying over Moffett Field because it's a it used to be a military base that was in restricted space. So it's fun for me to fly over there. But I only fly around here. I don't fly super far away. So there wouldn't be time for music because usually we're moving from one airspace to another. It's just super fun to play a little bit of tour guide while I'm up there too. Wow. Well, and and the other thing that's fun about it, just like, oh, you want to see that again? Let's just go zip around Alcatraz. You know, oh, you didn't get your picture? Let's go around the other oh. side. Or or you want to get closer to the Transamerica building or the new Salesforce building? Sure, let's just zip over there. So although it does make it does freak me a little bit, freak out a little bit in San Francisco because there aren't a lot of safe landing zones. So usually I'm kind of holding my breath as we're flying over certain parts of San Francisco because there's just no place to safely land in the event of a failed engine. So tell me about the failed engine. Have you ever experienced it or, or any other malfunctions that may have scared you before? Okay, knock on wood. So far, um, well, yes, there was one time where the carbon dioxide light went off. I was with a friend of mine, actually somebody I went to high school with who works for the FAA. She does ground crew electronic stuff in San Francisco at the airport and it went off and I was like, hmm. So we opened the windows, we opened the vents and we tried to clear it. And eventually I just said, okay, we're just going to head straight back. But so far, no, I've not had any other significant problems I try to do a pretty thorough pre-flight that lasts probably about 45 minutes to make sure that everything seems to be good. And I do practice, you know, simulated engine failures and various different uh, safety and emergency procedures periodically so that in the event that the, you know, the clutch light glows on for 10 seconds or it starts blinking and I need to land immediately or enter an auto rotation that I you know, comfortable enough to be able to execute those. 
Oh, wow. That's super interesting. So I know that you're trained for any emergency landing. You you had mentioned several times, even though, you know, God forbid, so well, you would never, ever need those skills. Same way with me training for martial arts. I don't ever want to be mugged or people attacking me, right? But in case of those events, what what are some of the things that you would do um, to mitigate that? Well, so in the event of an engine failure or anything that I would think would be an engine failure, then we practice auto rotations, which is essentially we decouple the main rotor from the engine. And so the the thing about that is there are three different types of energy. Um, You've got um, airspeed, you've got altitude, and you've got the kinetic energy that's built up into the main rotor. And with flying, it's all about energy management. And then when you enter an auto rotation, you use up that energy. So we try to, we pitch for a certain airspeed. We um, try to make sure that the rotor RPM doesn't uh, get too low or too high. If it's too low, it stalls out. If it's too high, we can, you know, damage it. And it's all about making sure that once we find the landing spot, the landing spot could be right below us. It could be ahead of us. It could be behind us. We want to make sure that we're always landing um, into the wind so that we've got the wind adding to that to that energy. And we get towards the ground and we hit a certain um, like 40 feet and we flare. And then we use the extra energy that we get in order to cushion the landing. And so we practice that kind of thing. So all sorts of things could lead to potentially an auto rotation. But I have to stay current on what to do if we have to land in the water with a with the engine on, with the engine off, with the with passengers, without passengers. Not something I ever want to do, but you know, I go through that periodically. I have so many other questions for you, but before we move on, I wanted to know how people, especially when men, respond to knowing you, the, the fact that you're a pilot, whether people you meet for the first time were in particular men who are also pilots themselves. <laughs> so uh, it's that's actually a really great question. And I'll come to the second part of uh, men who are pilots. So being a helicopter pilot is incredibly advantageous to me in the industry that I'm in because uh, I do IT strategy and IT compliance for biotech, med device, diagnostic, and digital health companies. I'm also an angel investor, an advisor, an expert witness. I'm often the only woman in the room. And now that I'm over 45, it's very easy for a lot of people to dismiss me as a woman. And so when I walk into a room and it's primarily men and I'll walk up and start to talk to them and you know, we'll talk about what I do. And on the consulting side, a lot of people don't understand it. So they just kind of just brush it off. Or being in Silicon Valley, if you don't work for a startup or a tech company, a lot of times quickly dismissed. So I'll say, yeah, I'm an angel investor. And that might pique their interest. And then we'll start talking about something and something will come up and they'll say, oh yeah, and I fly helicopters. And oh my gosh, all of a sudden, I get all the attention and all of a sudden I have credibility. And it's really sad and pathetic that it takes something like that in order to get the credibility. But it's one of the reasons why I drive a Tesla, because then I can be a part of a conversation, especially here where every other car is one. Or and then being a helicopter pilot. So trying to get the attention and not to be quickly dismissed by men in general, it's it's incredibly helpful. And then your your second question, I'm trying to think. So when I meet fixed wing pilots and they find out I'm a helicopter pilot, automatically I get yeah, I get a badass label very, very quickly on that one. And 
But if it's other helicopter pilots, it really depends. It's interesting. This week, Heli Expo is happening in Vegas, and I'm not there, unfortunately. And uh, usually female helicopter pilots, we, we, are, we are well taken care of. They, uh, other male helicopter pilots have a great deal of respect for us. Oh, that's so good to hear because I, not that I was con- too concerned, just given your energy level and frequency, I think you can handle pretty much anything. But, you know, being a programmer, computer programmer earlier in my career, I felt there was a lot of pressure from men to kind of dismiss your ability of any kind in addressing the issue that it was really hard, uh, I would say 15 years ago nearly. Um, but I think the industry, it's changing. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoy what you heard, it will be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Face Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Face Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah.